Welcome to another episode of the Criminal Law Department Presents podcast, a production of the Criminal Law Department at the Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School in Charlottesville, Virginia. Every two weeks, we release a new episode. Today, we're going to have a conversation about a recent opinion from the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces. Please note that these episodes may contain facts and circumstances surrounding criminal trials. Listener discretion is advised. Arise! Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. The Honorable United States Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces is now open and in session. God save the United States of America and this Honorable Court. All right, hello. Major Steve Dre here along with... Major Josh Mickelson once again. Good to see you again, Josh. And we're here to do another episode of CAF Chats. This one is United States versus Master Sergeant Daniel Bench. That's 82MJ388, CAF 2022. This is a great case, Josh. I'm excited to talk about it with you. You want to lead us off with the uh, background? Yeah, so let's let's kind of jump in. So this case... Uh, is really about an issue that's not litigated very often, at least in my experience. Uh, But when it is litigated, it's critical to know and understand what rules are in play and how they intersect with the Constitution, right? The issue in bench regards remote live testimony of a child. That said, the rule we're talking about in the Manual for Courts Martial is Military Rule of Evidence, or MRE 611D, And, of course, the constitutional issues that intersect there is the Sixth Amendment's uh, guarantee for confrontation. That is the oft-discussed and misunderstood confrontation clause. So today's episode, we'll discuss each of these in turn. What's going on in this case in USV Bench? What does MRE 611 require? And what is required to ensure that the right of confrontation is is satisfied here? MRE so, 611 and RCM 914 Alpha, right, Josh? We're thinking they sort of got to read them both together. Yeah, absolutely. So the MRE is is the rule, and the way I kind of think about it, the RCM is kind of how do you apply it practically in the courtroom. And so we'll we'll discuss both of those. But diving into the the facts of bench, so briefly, so this case, the appellant. He's convicted of sexually abusing his, uh, at that time, seven-year-old twins, approximately seven-year-old twins, one boy and one girl. Uh, this happened when he caused his son to, to grab his penis, and he, he groped his daughter's chest on, on different occasions while they were visiting him. Uh, so the appellant and his uh, ex-wife uh, were divorced in shared custody. Now, additionally, uh, he was also convicted of indecent conduct for having sex with his then-girlfriend in the presence of of the children while they spent the night at a hotel. And I think it's important, uh, an important fact here that the son, so the, the boy of the set of twins is, is considered by the, the court to be a high, high functioning on the autism spectrum. And this is important because when we dive into the 611 analysis, they, they bring this back up. So fast forward to the court martial, the twins are now nine years old and the government has requested remote live testimony for the son. Uh, the autistic son, under the standard set forth in MRE 611D. And the appellant now, there doesn't object to the request by the government. Yeah, yes, that's a, that's correct. And I As think they that's, could. Yeah, the, the judge critical. asked them, right, the judge asked them if they objected, and the defense specifically did not object to, generally, this, this boy testifying remotely under 914 Alpha and 611. Yep, that's absolutely correct. And so... 
because there's no objection, the MJ, the military judge says, hey, the standards met and allows for remote testimony. And we don't really get a lot of the analysis uh, in the in the appeal or reviewed by court, um, as you would expect, because there isn't the objection. Now, during the son's testimony at trial, uh, it, the government sets up in the remote area multiple monitors. And, and one of these monitors shows inside the courtroom and shows where the appellant is, is sitting. And because of this, and before the son testifies, they cover the appellant with a piece of paper. So when the son is testifying, he's looking at this monitor and can see half a monitor and the other half covered by a piece of paper. And of course, this sparks his interest, right? And he starts asking questions about this. And to the TC's frustration, the, you know, the nine-year-old high-functioning autistic child can't stop focusing on this piece of this monitor covered with a piece of paper. And so eventually what occurs is essentially what brings us here is the trial counsel lies to the appellant or lies to the kid and says, Hey, the appellant isn't there. It's just us here in this room. And that's all that matters essentially. Right. The boy keeps on. He's he's trying to figure out what's going on. He's sort of it seems like he's unclear about exactly what's happening there. And there's some quotes in the case, quote, conversation between this child and the trial counsel. He's just asking who's in there. Trial counsel says not so many. Is this something, you know, that, you know, are there going to be the court people there? The trial counsel says, no, it's just the three, the three of us right here. And so the import for the case is that the trial counsel is trying to or, to comfort this child to testify without this this sort of fear that other people are watching and specifically that the accused is watching. That's his concern. He asks at one point specifically, he says, hey, is the accused going to be standing right next to those people? Trial counsel says no. He says, where is he going to be standing? Trial counsel says he's not in there. He's not there. Right. So so misleading. The court specifically finds, though, not it, you know, it wasn't meant to be pernicious. It wasn't it wasn't something that the trial counsel did to to do anything necessarily prejudicial to the accused at the time. That wasn't the intent. It was just to comfort this child. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that the issue that's raised by calf is specifically whether lying to this witness about the appellant's presence uh, to secure that testimony whether that materially prejudices the appellant's Sixth Amendment right to confrontation. And there's a quote that I really like from uh, some of the underlying case law. So Coy uh, versus Iowa from 1988. So that's 487 U.S. uh, 1012, if anybody needs to look that up. Uh, the, The quote there is, it is always more difficult to tell a lie about a person to his face than behind his back. And really, I think that is the point that defense counsel and the appellate counsel kind of sees on is once the child doesn't believe that the accused is there, he now feels free to say whatever because it, he doesn't believe it's being confronted. And I can right. that's kind of the theory. That's the argument on appeal because really critical to this case, critical to the outcome. And we'll get a spoiler here is that the court doesn't even decide if this was an error is the defense counsel didn't object at trial, the defense counsel did not object when the trial counsel said a untruth, right? That that the appellant was not watching, that the accused at the time was not watching, couldn't see this child victim testifying. Uh, defense counsel did not object. And so I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit about where that puts us in terms of how the appeal goes. OK, because it's important for what this case will mean next time this comes up. 
is that the court, it goes through a discussion about whether this was waived and the court determines that it was not. And I'm not going to get too into the weeds on waiver other than I'll mention that, you know, things can be waived intentionally and things can be waived sort of as a matter of law. And however waiver happens on an issue, it means that the appellate court is just not going to consider the merits of that appeal. It's going to con- waiver means, okay, it's done. We're not looking at it on appeal. Significantly different though, and is forfeiture. And that's what we're that's what we're looking at here. The court finds this issue was not waived, so they can review it. Forfeiture means essentially that through negligence or some other reason, the the defense counsel didn't raise the issue at trial. And so the standard that the appellate court uses is plain error review. Plain error review has a three-pronged test. The first is just whether there was error. The second is whether it was plain or obvious. And then the third is that that error that was plain or obvious has to prejudice the material rights of the accused. And so here, the CAF didn't even decide whether this was error. They The, the case is decided on that middle prong that it wasn't plain or obvious. They basically say there's no case law on this. We don't, you know, there's nothing out there that the appellant can point to. And because it was raised for the first time on appeal... This this standard of review that we're using is going to result in a loss for the appellant because it's not obvious. So, yeah, and, and I think that's important. Is I'm not an appellate guy uh, at all, and so it really kind of makes my brain hurt when I start thinking about these different reviews and the lens that the court looks at this case and the facts through. And I think it's easy to fall into the trap of saying, well these guys did this in this case and the court didn't grant relief. Therefore I can do this because it could right. be a different story if the defense counsel objects, right? Cause it's a different review. Had the defense counsel objected here at trial first, the judge could have made a decision about it. Maybe the judge could have ruled in their favor, right? The judge could have, could have thought about confrontation law, the sixth amendment and decided, you know what? An important aspect of the right to confront is the, is the, there has to be some sort of sense of responsibility put put on the witness, right? Something like that. Like that that quote that you mentioned, Josh, at the beginning, that great quote that, you know, it's harder to lie when we know that we're lying to some about something somebody knows, right? When we're we have to sort of look at somebody in the face and lie to them. That's that's a harder lie, is is the idea. And so maybe the judge rules in favor of the accused there. And and then, you know, then the result would have been that the that this child victim would have had to, somebody would have had to tell the child victim the truth. Right. Which is no, actually p- part of this is that the accused is watching every word you say right now. Who knows what that results in? Maybe it results in just an intimidated victim who doesn't tell their version of the truth or their version of the story, rather. Uh, or right. The alternative is the judge could have overruled the objection, but then that would have preserved the objection. And then on appeal, instead of us using this sort of this sort of onerous test for the appellant, where they have to overcome that plain or obvious requirement, it's a de novo review. So the CAF would have the appellate court would have just been looking at this and deciding the law without any deference to the trial court at all, and deciding if the confrontation clause does actually require the a witness to know that the accused is is listening to every word they say. Uh, but that's not what that's not what happened here. And so we're left with this case, with this 
opinion, which you mentioned, Josh, we're not really sh- we're not really sure how this could go if it were preserved, if this issue were preserved. But we know certainly the court reiterates the three re- absolute requirements of confrontation. Do you want to talk about those real quick? Yeah. So the three elements of confrontation that, that keep coming up are first that uh, the accused has an opportunity to cross-examine the witness. Uh, second, that the witness takes an oath to tell the truth. And third, that the jury's able to observe the demeanor of the witness during the testimony. And that's that's what they keep coming back to, like you said. Right. And three that's prior really- tests. The, cru- the crucible of cross-examination. That's just the ability, right? It just means that, I don't want to say unfettered, but a robust ability of the defense counsel to cross-examine this child victim, which did happen here. The after the child victim testified, the that the defense counsel was not limited in how they how the defense counsel cross-examined him. And actually, sort of significant here is the defense counsel could have said, Hey, you know, you know, you actually know that the accused is listening, right? The calf, I think, mentions that quickly. The the defense counsel didn't do that, but probably could have, right? And that's perhaps the tool to remedy remedy this if it's not ultimately an error. Uh second, that that the witness has to has to give an oath, right? They have to take an oath rather that they uh, which you know essentially means that they understand the difference between telling the truth and lying and that the import of the situation that is is known to them. That's the second prong. And then the third prong is that the jury, the judge, the fact finder can observe the witness. And here, all of those three elements were met, right? Those those pillars of the right to confront were met here. We've got this aberration of, well, what if we tell an uh, untruth or half-truth or partial truth to a witness about the overall context as uh, a different consideration that, that we're sort of left with here, right? That we're sort of left with, we don't know in the future what, how that would come down if it were preserved, but uh, it's certainly not, it's not plain or obvious to us here. Yeah, I agree. I think this case is really instructive on talking about, Hey, what's the, what is the crux of the confrontation clause, especially when we look at it through the lens of this child remote testimony. And so the, the discussion is like, what are the big takeaways here? right? For practitioners. I think for defense counsel, I think it's important to ask, hey, what are the options I have as a defense counsel? You have a client, you're going to have a child testify uh, remotely, potentially. What are your choices? One, like we talked about, object and fight the motion, right? Then you get into 611 and you're arguing the requirements uh, laid out in 611 Delta, the military rule of of evidence 611 uh, Delta. Okay. If if your client doesn't want to object, uh, then the other option is under RCM 804, your client can remove themselves from the court martial, right? And then the child has to testify in the courtroom without the presence of your client. And then third, like what happened here in bench essentially is you can not object and essentially consent to the remote live testimony. And that's that discussion of, you know, waiver or forfeiture of, of your confrontation clause, right? I think that sums it up. Are there, is there another option I'm missing? No, I think that's right. I, I, you know, I'm curious. Now we can get into maybe the wild speculation portion of this because I'm curious what you think about about a couple of ideas here, Josh. Is first, you know, okay, so the CAF doesn't decide this issue. We don't know if this was an error or not. Basically, right? They they sort of 
I don't want to say punt, but they they avoid deciding whether this is error or not. But part of their analysis on whether it was plain or obvious is looking at case law out there, and there is none. This they say this is a case of first impression. We've really never seen anything like this before. For, I mean, first they they reiterate that there's it's not a it's not a confrontation clause issue that we have remote live testimony of children. They say that they say, hey, Craig is still good law. That's not a problem. But then they say there's no case law out there that really tells us that this is an error to you know offer a untruth or mislead such a witness. There's nothing out there telling us clearly that's in an error. And then they have this pretty heavy discussion of the other three elements of the immovable objects of the confrontation clause, right? That that there's an oath, that there's the right to cross-examine, and that the fact finder can observe the witness. And so you get the impression here that even if the there had been an objection lodged at trial that it probably would, I feel like it would have come out the same way, right? Is that you've got the, uh, it's a case of first impression. What's the actual prejudice here? It's like, it's an interesting take. It's an interesting, it's certainly a fascinating position that a, a witness is going to be less likely to lie if they know that the person who would most be likely to know the truth is sitting there staring at them. Uh, but uh, you know, you have to balance that with you look at MRE 611D3B. That part of the test for this is that the child witness would be traumatized. And I'm quoting from the rule here, not by the courtroom generally, but by the presence of the accused. So one of the three most significant considerations that a judge is looking at when approving remote live testimony is on how the child witness would be traumatized by the accused. Right. It's not we're not talking about like, oh, the overall we get it like a child victim just has to put up with some of the stress related to testifying. But that we are most concerned with the stress directly caused by the by the presence of the accused. That's why we have remote live testimony. It's not to protect them from the the awe inspiring nature of a courtroom. It's the accused. And so you, you sort of match that up with with what confrontation clause requires those three elements and you match you marry it up with this rule in MRE 611. And yeah, I don't know. It kind of feels like, like maybe this is okay. What do you think? And I think that's a great point, Stephen. It's what makes this case all that much more interesting because when you look at RCM 914 alpha that lays out how to apply or how to go about conducting remote live testimony of a child, you ask yourself, well, why was there even this monitor in the courtroom where the child that you're protecting from the presence of the accused could potentially see the accused? And there's nothing in 914 Alpha that would require that. So if you're dealing with this in the field, go to 914 Alpha, find the requirements. If 611 is met and you're dealing with this, that's what you should be basing it on. Right. Read the rules. This is this should come up all the time. Read the rules. Go, you know, if you think something's ambiguous, maybe do a little bit of legal research. See if there's any analysis of it, but this, these are pretty straightforward. Meet the wickets. Is there anything that requires now? Maybe the judge required a a video feed in there to the accused, but right. Who knows? It's easy to Monday morning quarterback this now, right? And say, of course, this is clearly maybe there was a equipment uh, limitations or something that forced them to go with this paper over the monitor option. But the, know what the requirements are and, and put those put those into play. Thinking too, you know, it's, this is another case. Most cases are just about tensions, right? Like what is, we, we are balancing 
here a constitutional right of the accused which is i mean the most maybe the most important one and in terms of uh a contested trial that right to confront balancing it with you've got vulnerable victims who generally there's going to be all sorts of obstacles in terms of getting out their version of a story nothing about this case and nothing about how it played out at trial limited the accused's ability to cross-examine this person and get at the truth with the best tool we have and you know we're left with just a, an interesting a really interesting case yeah and you've identified exactly you know where the seam between uh maryland v craig is with the public policy for why we want to protect children uh from additional trauma or unnecessary trauma and crawford v washington right which is the the pinnacle of confrontation clause jurisprudence it's in its strongest form in my opinion so and this is the seam that we're in with usv bench yeah cool all right well any final thoughts or is that it no i think that sums it up i think the again the big takeaways we talked about well, what are the options for the defense counsel and then finally for government counsel know those uh three required elements of confrontation at the very least you know number one that there's an opportunity to cross-examine the witness Number two, that the witness takes an oath in accordance with MRE 603. And three, that the jury is able to observe the demeanor of the witness during that testimony. And that's going to be your pathway to success uh, when dealing with confrontation issues. Right. And the, t- and the takeaway for defense, just to double tap this, is object when things don't feel right. Object when you can articulate and be sure you can articulate how this prejudice is your client, right? You, there's probably... Th- two or three quick things you can come up with here to identify how your client is going to be disadvantaged. Whether an appellate court agrees or whether the trial court agrees with you or not, you're putting it out there and you're and you're offering a basis for why a judge should rule for you. So stand up, don't hesitate, make the objection, you don't lose anything, right? I agree. All right. USV bench. Thanks, Josh. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, listeners. <laughs> You love, can cut that last one. We love you. No, I'm keeping this off. This is still here. Thanks for joining us today for another episode of the Criminal Law Department Presents podcast. If anything you heard sparked a thought, we'd love to connect with you. Your comments help us create better future content for the field or the fleet. Reach out to us on Facebook or Instagram. The information can be found in the show notes for today's episode. The views expressed in today's podcast are those of the presenters and not necessarily the Judge Advocate General's Corps, the Department of the Army, or the Department of Defense. Court thanks counsel for both sides, and the court will stand in recess until further order of the court.